Good morning. Thank you, Kelly. Beautiful job. So very appropriate for the message this morning. Turn, if you would, to John chapter number 7. John chapter number 7. We'll be reading in verse number 1 in just a moment. A small boy was sent to bed by his father. Five minutes later, this is what he heard. Dad, what? I'm thirsty. Can you bring me a drink of water? No, you had your chance. Lights out. Five minutes later, Dad, what? I'm thirsty. Can I have a drink of water? I told you no, and if you ask again, I'm going to spank you. Five minutes later, Dad, what? When you come in to spank me, would you bring me a glass of water? (laughs) Have you ever been that thirsty? This morning, I want to speak to you on a subject more important than physical thirst, but spiritual thirst. Chapter number seven begins with, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. And now the Jews' harvest of tabernacles was at hand. Now we know from this reading, as John tells us, that this is the Feast of the Tabernacles. The Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, was a harvest feast. It took place when all the harvest had been gathered. As Americans, we love to celebrate holidays. I don't think anyone would argue that the three major holidays that we celebrate, celebrated by almost all Americans, are Christmas, Thanksgiving, and the 4th of July. Well, the Jewish people also love to celebrate holidays. They called their holidays feast. There were three great national feasts in the Jewish religious calendar. They were the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. If you look closely at verse number 2, you'll see that John refers to this feast not as a feast, but the feast, the feast of the tabernacles, because it was the highlight of the Jewish feast. Now today, when we look back, we think the observance of the Passover, because it tends to grip our attention because of the grand story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. But for the Jews, the high point of the year was the Feast of the Tabernacles. The name Tabernacles was due to the custom of celebrating this feast outside in shelters made for that purpose. It was, if you will, a national week of camping out. The children must have loved it. For a week, the people lived in little huts that they had constructed to remember their forefathers spending time wandering in the wilderness. It was a time for remembering their wanderings in the wilderness, and so the parents would tell their children how God miraculously provided for their fathers for 40 years in the wilderness. They would tell them the exciting story of how God guided his people by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day and how he provided manna from heaven and water from a rock. This was a high and happy and holy day in the life of the Jewish people. 
The Feast of Tabernacles was like Christmas, Thanksgiving, and the 4th of July all rolled into one. It was well attended for two reasons. Number one, it was exciting and it was fun to celebrate and to attend. And secondly, all, all, it was one of the three feasts that every Jewish male who lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem was required to attend. One of the rituals that was associated with this feast was intended to remind them of the time when they were very, very thirsty. To commemorate God's miraculous provision of water each day during the feast, a procession of priests would go down to the pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher, dip it into the water, then they would take it back to the temple mount where they would gather with the other priests and pour it out around the altar. It was there that the pitcher was poured out around the base of the altar, and that moment, the Levites would blow trumpets and the crowd would shout, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3. There was leaping and dancing and shouting and singing and great shouts of hallelujah would fill the air. That was the procedure for the first seven days. But on the last day of the feast, it was different. It was much more solemn. The priest would still take the golden pitcher down to the pool of Siloam, but he wouldn't fill it up. Instead, he would walk back up to the temple with an empty pitcher. That empty pitcher was symbolic of the fact that Israel still thirsted. They were still waiting for the Messiah who would come and pour out his spirit on the nation. And so as the priest symbolically poured out this empty pitcher on that day, a priest would read from Isaiah 44, 3, for I will pour water on him as thirsty and floods on the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit upon your descendants and my blessings on your offsprings. And it was at this very climatic moment that the Lord Jesus stood to his feet in the temple and he said these words, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Jesus realized that they were drinking, but they were drinking from a a river of ritual. And after those days were over, they would go back to the same old fears, the same old faults, the same old failures, and the same old frustrations. And what was wrong with that crowd is also wrong with many today. There's a commercial on television these days that most of you are familiar with. Jonathan Goldsmith, as the world's most interesting man, ends every commercial with these words, stay thirsty, my friends. Satan is and the world understand that human beings are seeking to fulfill their thirst. Unfortunately, here they're promoting alcohol as the answer for that problem. But it is not. Now skip down with me to verse number 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
By this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I want you to notice three things with me. First of all, the declaration. John wants us to see that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the Feast of the Tabernacles. So now on the last day of the feast, Jesus stands up in the temple and says in a loud voice that he is the source of living water to all who would come to him and drink. In other words, he's saying, I fulfill all that this feast symbolizes. Now that's an amazing claim. No mere human could make such a promise. Come to me and drink and I'll fulfill the scriptures by causing rivers of living water to flow out of your innermost being. No one, well, no one except God in human flesh, God tabernacling among us could legitimately make that claim. The second thing I want you to see is the invitation. And the first thing we note about that invitation is the scope. It says, He says, if anyone thirsts, anyone is as broad as you can get. Jesus even is extending this invitation to those who considered themselves his enemies. Those who were trying to kill him. They could come and drink. And by extending this offer in the temple, he's extending it to all of the religious Jews who had come to Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate this feast. Even though they were going through all the prescribed Jewish rituals, those rituals could not save them. So whether you grew up in a Christian home or not, you grew up in a completely pagan home, no matter what your background, the offer is for you. Come to Jesus and drink. No one is excluded To underscore this truth, the Bible virtually ends with a repetition of that promise found in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17. The spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. So there's the scope, anyone. There's the condition, thirst. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. The Bible often uses language like that to describe spiritual thirst. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55.1 said, Ho, let everyone who thirsts come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. The psalmist wrote, in Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you. Later, the psalmist exclaims, O oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And John the Apostle wrote, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega The beginning and the end, I will give of the fountains of water of life freely to him who thirsts. The thirst that Jesus is describing is of a pure 
purely spiritual kind. It describes when a person comes to the place that they recognize their sin. They long for forgiveness and for inner peace. Those present on the day of Pentecost, as David, as Peter preached, felt that because it says they were pierced in their hearts. The Philippian jailer experienced it when he cried out to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Both are examples of spiritual thirst. Now, it might seem that being thirsty for God seems easy enough. But the problem is, because of sin, people either don't recognize their thirst or they seek to fulfill it and satisfy it in the wrong way. The tragedy of our age is that we try to satisfy a thirst for God with other things. Even if people realize they are thirsty, they often try to satisfy it with the wrong things. The world is full of things that do not satisfy and that are, in fact, really poisonous and destructive. Jeremiah says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. If you don't believe me, then ask the drug addict, ask the alcoholic, ask the gambler, ask the person who is always looking for more. Money and sex and power, they never quench our spiritual thirst. They are dangerous substitutes for the living water that Jesus promises. And all they do is ultimately kill us. Third, look, if you would, at the remedy. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus explained what he meant by the symbol of drinking. To come to Jesus and to drink was essentially to put one's faith in him, to trust in him, to rely on and cling to Jesus both for now and for eternity. The remedy may seem very simple. In fact, some people think it's too simple to be true, but there is no other remedy than this. The saints of God in every age have been men and women who drank from this fountain by faith and were saved. They were delivered from their feelings of guilt and from emptiness and thirst by gaining deliverance. The third thing I would have you look with me this morning is the reward. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. There's a threefold reward. First of all, salvation. First and foremost, of course, the primary benefit of coming to Jesus by faith is being eternally saved by the grace of God. Saved from what? Well, saved from eternal separation from God. The sinner is condemned and doomed before the Lord. Earlier, John had recorded in John chapter 3 and verse 36, He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. However, 
When that same sinner comes to Jesus and receives him by faith, that sinner is saved. Saved from hell, saved and delivered from death and protected from the wrath of God. And again, John says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment that is passed from life unto, unto, from death unto life. The person that has placed his faith in Jesus for salvation never fear being lost again. Even if this was the only benefit that we received from coming to Jesus, being saved, of course, would be worth it. Because salvation will change your life here, and it will bring you into a place of blessing and into the family of God. And it guarantees that you will go to heaven when you die. But there's more. Saved, and secondly, satisfied. Satisfaction. The Lord Jesus says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Those words have a double application. They teach, for one thing, that all who come to Christ by faith shall find in him abundant satisfaction. The King James Version translates out of his heart, literally out of his belly, meaning out of the deepest part of man, the seat of our emotions. When we talk about a a belly laugh, we mean the same thing. A belly laugh comes from deep within. The change that Jesus makes touches us at the very core of who we are. You will know that you are truly saved when you come to Jesus and something happens to you that you cannot fully explain. True conversion is more than just walking an aisle. It's more than saying a prayer. It's more than shaking a preacher's hand. True conversion means Almighty God has entered into your life in the deepest, most personal part and takes up residence within you. You can truly say, I know I'm saved when you know that God has done something for you and in you that only God could do. Or to put it another way, to say, If everything in your life can be explained apart from God, then why do you need God? True conversion goes beyond religion, which is why religious people are often the last to be converted. Yet we understand that the belly is a part of man that is rarely satisfied. We feed it, and soon thereafter it cries out for more. Yet Jesus says if we come to him, he will give us satisfaction for our most pressing needs. As I alluded to earlier, in this world, the people dwell in it, seek after those things that really, truly never satisfy. The pursuit of those things leaves one empty and always looking for more. Jesus, on the other hand, abundantly satisfies the soul of man. By coming to Jesus, we have tapped into a fountain of living water, which is never exhausted, one that abundantly satisfies. Saved, satisfied, serving. Jesus not only spoke of something coming into a person, but of something flowing out of them as well. 
It was not only a blessing received, but it was also becoming a source of blessing to others. The Bible makes clear that this water of life that is placed within us forms a mighty river that flows out from us and touches those around us. What the Lord is saying is that we will be abundantly satisfied and that he will use us to reach others for his glory. No doubt those who heard Jesus speaking these words were reminded of the story in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. The, elder, the Israelites were thirsty and God told Moses to strike a rock. And when he struck the rock, it opened up and watered, flowed forth into the desert and refreshed all who came into contact with it. So it is with us. When we are saved and we place ourselves in his hands, he will allow us to pour forth the living water into the dry desert of this world. John MacArthur wrote this. He said, this is just an amazing statement about how much your life matters. You want your life to matter? Well, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if you're not a Christian. It all disappears into eternal judgment in the end when you die. You don't have any eternal positive effect. When you think about what matters in society, Christians matter because they are a testament of life unto life. They're the fountain and the river of living water that flows to the world. The results and the people being redeemed and taking eternal glory, that matters. But as Jesus spoke these words, this was yet future. For the Holy Spirit had not yet come in his fullness. So in verse 39, what we read is a prophecy. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him received. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Holy Spirit couldn't come until Jesus was glorified when he ascended into heaven. That happened seven and a half months later on the day of Pentecost. Then he sent the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, then the river on the inside began to flow into the world. So Jesus says, for those of you who come to me and drink, you will not only be satisfied, but you will become a river of life to the world. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. What an amazing invitation to say not only will you have your soul totally satisfied forever, you'll never thirst again, but your life will also take on eternal significance. Let's pray. Father, I don't know the hearts of all those who are gathered here this morning, but I know that you do. And that you look into the deepest part of their being and you know what their needs are. There may be one here today that 
needs to turn to you and accept what you've done on the cross of Calvary. Accept forgiveness of sin and be added to the family of God. There are others who, they've just been beat down by the world. And they just need to know that you love them and you're concerned about everything that goes on in their lives. Would you just wrap your arms around them this morning and help them to feel your presence and to feel your love? It may be that your word is challenging some of us today in some way. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts, you'd guide and direct this invitation, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to have a hymn of invitation. This is for you. If you're here this morning, God's spoken to you in some way. I'd invite you to come as we begin to sing. Maybe you need to come and and find out more about salvation. Maybe you need to come and request baptism. Maybe you need to come and you.